In this episode of CubeFM, we'll be learning how to build containers from scratch in C with something called Barco. Barco in Spanish means boat, but it turns out that this word actually comes from another language, which you'll be hearing from our presenter, Luca. Luca created Barco in order to make it easier to build containers from scratch in C. Uh, a CLI, we're going to be talking about namespaces, talking about control groups. He's got tons of experience and can explain how he built this, the things that went into it behind the scenes. On top of that, we would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Learn K8s. Learn K8s is a training organization that allows you to learn all the latest and greatest things happening in the Kubernetes ecosystem right from the comfort of your home. Their online courses, as well as courses that are in person, they are instructor led, a balance between theoretical and practical, as we know it's important to get your hands dirty, to get real experience with these technologies in order to level up. Like I said, courses are online or in person. You'll have access to all the videos for the rest of your life so you can squeeze all that knowledge or revisit topics if you choose to do so in the future. Check out learnk8s.io for more information. And now, let's get to the episode. So here we are in season two. Very nice to have our first guest with us. His name is Luca. Luca, welcome to the CubeFM podcast. Thanks, Barth, for having me. Good pleasure. Now, that being said, if you had a brand new Kubernetes cluster, what would be the first three tools that you would install? Oh, that, that's a good question. Um, I think it really depends on what that Kubernetes cluster is for. Um, so um, I, I used to work as a consultant in the past, and I work on different projects for different customers. And well, some of them had um, MTLS. Well, in that case, we would deploy Istio, for example. Uh, others may need um, some special uh, CI/CD setup, so we will deploy Argo CD. Um, I, I think I would say it really depends on uh, on the use case. Um, I am myself not particularly into tools. I, I try to to keep them at the minimum. Um, so even even tools like um, K9s, right? It, it's something I don't really use because well, there's kubectl, and I try to go as much as possible with with stock options. Um, so yeah, my definitive answer is would be it depends. That's a fair answer, and like you said, having a consulting background, not rushing in necessarily to to one tool or the other. Um, that being said, you know, you said you did work as a consultant, but tell us more about what you do now, who you work for, the kind of stuff you're working on. Well, currently I, I work as a senior software engineer at GitHub, uh, and actions in particular. Um, I work a lot with Go, Kubernetes, um, also more on the, on the platform engineering side of things. Uh, so I, I like to keep myself somewhere in between software development and uh, DevOps, platform engineering, uh, cloud computing. Um, yeah, so that, that is in short who I am and what I do. This is off script, so you can answer however you want. Uh, given that you talked about platform engineering, is DevOps dead? Is it alongside platform engineering? Are we talking about two different things? What's your take on that? I think there are many names for what is in a way, all the same thing. Um, you could call it DevOps. You could call it platform engineering. The, the core idea behind it is to uh, provide tools um, to, to, to developers to be able to do their work nicely uh, and to the business to be able to run the, their application. Um, there are some nuances. Um, say maybe platform engineering is more about uh, building a platform for uh, for teams to use, for for the business to use, but in the end, I see all these terms a bit as, you know, maybe marketing terms, as if we're trying to sell something as new. But in the end, I would say it's pretty much all the same stuff. You know, in terms of how things have progressed over time, how did you get into cloud native, and what were you doing before you were doing cloud native? Right, so. I've been in software development for about 10 years. Yeah, I think it's 2023, so it's really 10 years exactly. Um, I started um, as a full stack developer. So uh, I actually, I, so I'm located in, in the Netherlands, but I was born and grew up in Italy. Uh, and I worked there for, for three years before moving here. Uh, and what I did there, uh, as I said, was a full stack development. So you know, creating 
websites and platforms, uh, CMS systems, for example, for external customers. I used to work at, at an agency. Uh, back then, uh, PHP and Laravel, jQuery were all the rage. So that, that's pretty much how I started. Um, and then I moved here um, and well, I sort of continued uh, that full stack trend, but uh, I would say I was more focused on backend development. I'm more aware of Node, uh, Golang, cloud providers. Um, and, and that's pretty much what I did up until maybe 2018 or so. Uh, I became more and more interested in uh, infrastructure uh, and cloud native. Uh, and that's when I decided to make the, the switch and focus more uh, on you know, cloud native, uh, Google Cloud back then, Kubernetes. Um, what I found more interesting uh, than, let's say, full stack development or you know, front end with React is that um, I feel when you're uh, doing infrastructure kind of work or more uh, heavy backend uh, kind of work, uh, then you're really working on um, what powers the internet, what powers uh, the business uh, and, and any kind of system really. Uh, so that's it, it's as if you're working closely with you know with, with machines and with actually providing uh, the backbone of uh, modern technology and, and the internet. Um, whereas, um, say, if you're working as a front end engineer, nothing against front end engineers. That that that's my experience, uh, but. I couldn't easily see myself, let's say, building some UI for a um, um, music player, an online music player, for example. Uh, I mean, I, I use uh, I use Spotify in the past. I'm using Apple Music, but it's something that it it isn't something that I find very important in my life. Right? It's it's a bit ephemeral in a way. So um, I, I like to work on something that is. Uh, the foundation of modern computing rather than uh, specific use cases uh, like a, a, an online music player could be or a website to, um, to order food online. I use those, they're very useful, but I see less value in that than say building infrastructure, right? And working with networking and that kind of stuff. You know, the cloud native ecosystem, Kubernetes, this, this space moves very, very quickly. How do you stay up to date? Blogs, videos, podcasts, what are your resources of choice? A few years ago, I found out about this app or a website called Feedly. And, you know, they're not sponsoring me, but I find Feedly uh, very useful in that. Um, uh, well, it's an app that lets you aggregate different um, RSS uh, providers, so you can get like a personalized list of news every day from whatever blogs and websites uh, you decide to follow. So I, I have a pretty big setup uh, that, that I use there with many uh, um, websites about, I don't know, Cloud Native or, or Golang, open source um, and whatnot. And I try to go through those news every day just to see what's new. Uh, though. I must say, maybe in general, I wouldn't really call myself a, uh, an early adopter. So in my life, I have limited time, um, and I find I can't really chase all the new things that are happening. So I, I like to keep an eye out on, on the tech world and how it develops. Uh, but then I, I try, I think most of the times, I, I let others try for me. And if it's something that sticks, it will become famous and, and big enough that it will be impossible to ignore. Um, for example, I, I remember mentioning uh, Istio earlier. Well, a few years ago, Istio was this new thing. Uh, it wasn't really clear what it was for and, and where the benefits would be. So I really avoided in um, at the beginning. Uh, but then well, I think we're, um, many of us uh, are familiar with what Istio is for um, and so, I, I let others try it and experiment with it. And now I know what it is for, what the experiences of, of people are. Uh, and I think now it's a good time for me you know, to dive deeper into that. Uh, that's just an example, but yeah, in, in general, um, I like to to filter out um, 
stuff that is really important, technologies that are important, that can be useful uh, from you know, every new thing that appears every day. Even though we're, we're talking of cloud native and not JavaScript frameworks, uh, so that, that's even a bigger problem there. Um, yeah, but I, I would say that that's been my uh, philosophy. Okay. And since you mentioned, you know, time being a later adopter and in, in your experience, if you had to go back and give yourself advice, you know, at an early point in your career about learning Kubernetes, things that would have been helpful to know when you got started, what would that advice look like? So I, I have to say I'm fairly happy about uh, my my progression so far. And there aren't any, any major things that, um, that I would change about it. Uh, but... Pretty much on the same note as what we just said. I think at the beginning of my career, I sometimes would spend time, uh, maybe too much time focusing on certain tools or certain you know, new hype technologies. Um, and well, later on, I learned to, to filter that out. Uh, but maybe you know, in the first few years, I spent a bit more time that, uh, than now I would have wanted to. Um, so that, that would be my, my main advice uh, for, uh, for myself. Yeah. Start earlier with filtering out the hype and uh, you know, only focus on what really matters. Very good point. It's a process that everyone has to go through in one way or another. And, and keeping that in mind that there will be you know, filtering that will happen because of the hype, because of, like you said, the, the value that can be seen in marketing in certain terms or another or pumping up a certain technology, that it takes time. And, and it's something that, that everyone goes through in one way or another. Now, for today's episode, you wrote an article uh, called Barco uh, Linux Containers um, from Scratch and C. For those of the folks in our audience that don't know what the word Barco means in Spanish, it means boat. So this is quite fitting with the nautical theme that we're frequently speaking about. But to get started, can you tell our audience um, what Linux containers are and how they work? Um, well, what I learned... Uh, working on that project and, and writing the blog post is that anyway, there's no such thing as Linux containers. Um, Linux containers are really the, the product of a number of Linux features uh, that you can put together and configure appropriately to get what we know as containers, right? So some of the most important uh, of those Linux uh, kernel features that are needed to build containers are, uh, for example, C groups and namespaces. Uh, so C groups are a, a way to tell um, to tell Linux how much of a resource to allocate to a process. So uh, how much CPU, how much memory, for example, um, and that's uh, the, the same kind of configuration that you see, for example, when uh, creating some uh, Kubernetes deployment, for example, where you specify uh, requests and, and limits, um, as in CPU limits. And, and namespaces instead are another feature uh, to tell Linux to isolate certain aspects of, of your process from the rest. So th there are a number of um, types of namespaces. There's, for example, mount namespaces for uh, the file system. Um, there's uh, you know, user namespaces uh, to, to isolate different users. And, and these two are really the main things uh, behind containers. Then other, other features are like, uh, for example, uh, SACOM, uh, that, uh, that is configuration that you can give Linux to uh, set security rules for your container, uh, capabilities, uh, which is similar to SACOM, um, and capabilities uh, let you specify what a user uh, what the container uh, can and cannot do uh, inside the container uh, that also affects the the host operating system um, yeah so well building that project barco uh, that, that's where I learned you know that there's no let's say create container system call in Linux. Uh, containers are really uh, what you get by putting together uh, all these different features. With some of those features that you described, you know, isn't a lot of that what Docker is used for? Yeah, definitely. So Docker um, relies on those Linux features to provide Docker containers. So 
um, you know, a few years ago, I, I would look at Docker and ask myself, um, how is Docker doing all of this? They must be geniuses. And well, I mean, they're definitely good engineers, uh, but all they're doing is really building something on top of what is already provided by the Linux kernel. Uh, and well, those features, the way we talked about earlier, they're really the, the product of maybe, I don't know, 20 years of development uh, in the kernel and contributions for, from other companies. Um, so before Docker became big, like, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so now, there were different opinions in the industry uh, and from, from IBM, for example, or Google. Uh, they all had different opinions on how to, um, to have containers, what, what we now call containers, right? So a way um, to run applications um, in your Linux system, but then separate from everything else that's on the machine, and also make it possible to distribute um, these applications. So definitely, yes, it's what Docker does, but Docker uh, builds on top of uh, existing Linux features. So like you said, in, in, in that case, having something like Docker, but then there's the, also the option of, you know, writing your own. And that's essentially what you did with Barco, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, well, the, the project I worked on, uh, it's similar to Docker, I would say, in you know, in its core idea, so uh, leveraging those uh, Linux features to uh, to create the container, uh, but it's um, infinitely more simple. Uh, and really, the, the only thing that that does is uh, set up a hard coded container. Um, and well, the the main idea behind it was really to learn uh, what Docker does, what containers are. Um, so I've been working in the cloud native space for a few years now, and you know, I read books about Docker and about Kubernetes. I read blog posts about containers, but I always feel that just by reading, especially for certain topics, it's really hard to understand you know, what you are dealing with in a way, right? So if you read a book about Kubernetes, uh, you, you will learn what containers are uh, and, and maybe, you know, C groups will be mentioned, uh, but then I couldn't really find any resource, uh, as in well, books. Uh, I couldn't find any book uh, that will tell me, you know, how do you create the container? So, uh, everyone tells you what the container is, uh, but if you want to dig deeper, uh, then it's something you really need to do yourself and, and build a project like like Barco uh, to to really understand what's going on. Um, yeah, that's um, a recurring theme for me, I would say. For example, uh, another project I worked on uh, is a very small and simple DNS server uh, built in Rust. Um, that was also, for me, more of a educational uh, project rather than a real attempt at creating a DNS server. But uh, you know, even if you pick up a, um, a networking book and you read what that what uh, DNS is, um, it's still hard, at least for me, to wrap my head around you know, um, what is DNS besides or what is DNS um, at a deeper level. You know, how does it work? What does it mean to read? Uh, bytes from from a buffer and to parse that byte into a, a DNS message that you can make sense of. Um, so to summarize, um, Barco and other uh, late projects of mine, uh, they uh, they came from my need to understand uh, encode what it means to build containers or or um, have DNS server, for example. It's it's great to see though that just like all you know with a lot of startups is that you you yourself encountered a problem of you know how how does someone actually you know create a container where do these where do these things come from and and then providing that answer yourself through this project can you walk us through you know just exactly how Barco works particularly if we're thinking about things like capabilities in CCOMP? Um Barco is uh, well it, it's a CLI application uh, and uh, when you start a process. Uh, you need to specify some parameters, uh, for example, the command you want to run, um, where to mount the uh, um, 
um, file system, namespace, and other such options. So the first things it does um, is really, um, there's a setup um, part, I would say, where uh, the very basic settings uh, for the container are created. So uh, for example, um, setting up C groups, that, that, that's one, or uh, creating the namespace that will be used eventually. And while well, you mentioned SICOM and, and capabilities, uh, those are steps after uh, that initial setup. Um, and they're actually called um, from really inside the container for the most part. So I just mentioned C groups and, uh, um, and namespaces. Those are options that are mostly set by uh, the parent process, so Barco. Uh, but then that parent process starts a new process, and that's the actual container. And when starting, that container needs to make certain calls uh, for you know, setting up SACOM, setting up capabilities, uh, and, and also later to, to start the actual uh, application that the container should run. So specifically about capabilities and, and SACOM, so uh, we said it's uh, configuration that's set uh, before the container uh, starts doing actual stuff. And um, they are set with uh, Linux system calls. So um, th there are syscalls that, that you can make from C uh, to set those options. There's, for example, the uh, second rule add uh, system call from Linux. It, it lets you add a, a second rule. Um, for example, uh, you know, you can limit the user, or you, you can prevent the user from running certain uh, combinations of, uh, of the chmod command, for example. Um, or you know, with capabilities, you can uh, ask Linux to prevent the user from um, you know, checking the syslog or uh, running other types of uh, directory-based commands, for example. Um, and that's all um, configuration needed for security. Um, and, and that configuration really, um, well, I, I got it mostly from blog posts and also looking at the, uh, at the Docker uh, config. You might be interested in you know, what are the basic uh, security settings that, that I've used. So I spent some time reading a blog post uh, and all those blog posts tend to point to a Docker um, documentation. That's because, well, Docker is a bit of the golden standard in, in containers. I mean, there are other options, like for example, Podman, but I think for the most part, Docker is still the, the, the tool that is most widely used. And um, there is a page in their docs where they tell you exactly the, the basic security configuration the Docker uses. So I rely on uh, those docs to set up uh, the basic security options uh, for Barco. Um, but there are um, settings, for example, in Docker that can be changed. So um, you can set capabilities uh, for, uh, for a container. Um, for some, that, that's possible, for example, in, when creating a deployment for Kubernetes. I think one of those is like Ptrace. Uh, that, that's a feature that is disabled by default uh, for security reasons, but it can be enabled later. Um, in the case of Barco, you know, everything is hard-coded, so there's no way to customize that. And that's another way uh, in which you know, Barco is uh, much different than, say, a production-ready tool like Podman or, or Docker. Those let you configure your environment as you like. Barco has everything hard-coded, uh, and once again, just for educational purposes. Uh, maybe something good to add would be that um, you know, I, I just said how SACOM and capabilities are set um, via system calls. That's not the case for all um, Linux kernel features related to containers. For example, C groups, um, those uh, rely on a virtual file system. So uh, setting up C groups for, uh, for a container uh, really involves writing a file to a special location on disk. I, I thought it's, it's different to see how different features in, in Linux work differently, right? I, I, initially, I would expect everything to be done via syscalls, maybe, or well, everything is file-based. 
in, in Unix-like system. So maybe everything could have been uh, files. Uh, but I think Barco um, not only helped me understand you know, more about containers, but also about uh, Linux internals, uh, which is something else that I find very interesting and maybe an extra reason for me to, to work on, on this project, right? So not just to, to learn more about containers, but uh, also a bit to learn how Linux does things, especially at the lower kernel level, maybe. Now at this point, you know, the container is running and it's secure. What happens after that? What's next? Once everything is set up, uh, the container is running on its own. So if, if you tell Barco to run the, um, to run bash, for example, inside the container. Well, then in your terminal, you get this shell to bash inside uh, your container so through Barco, but inside the container, a bit like you would have with, with Docker. And there you're free to do, um, I wouldn't say pretty much everything because uh, that, that wouldn't be correct, really. Um, you, know, you have access to everything that bash has access to. So you can run um, LS, you can run CD, uh, you can run an echo, uh, but there's no networking, for example. I never added that part to Barco. It, it was enough uh, educational material for me already as it is. Um, the project contains some docs, some ideas on how that could be implemented. Um, but really, uh, well, the, there are many things you can do inside a Barco container, let's say. So once it's running, what happens is that the parent container, so uh, sorry, the parent process, uh, so Barco, which spawned the container, is waiting for the uh, the container to exit. That's something else that's done via system calls. Really, we have Barco waiting uh, for the container to exit um, through the, sys the syscall. Uh, the parent process uh, is alerted when the, the container exits. And then, uh, you know, after... Uh, after the exit, Barco takes care of cleaning up uh, the resources that were used. So, for example, uh, clearing the, the C groups or um, making sure that there is no user configuration left behind that was initially set up for the container. Um, and, well, besides that, um, it's not container specific, but uh, Barco also cleans up some memory that it's used for other stuff like, for example, uh, some library that I'm using to handle CLI commands. Um, so it does that, and once all the resources have been freed, then also the Barco process exits, ideally uh, without leaving any allocated memory behind. Uh, I, I think that the, the project itself is uh, quite simple and, and uh, allocations are easy to track. Uh, but that's definitely a concern where I'm using a language like C, where you have to manage memory yourself. You use the word easy, and it doesn't sound like this would be the easiest kind of project to do in my spare time. What, you know, how much time did this take you to, to get it up and running? Oh, you, you definitely could. Um, I think it took me about, uh, I don't know, maybe a month. And I would work on it a bit in the evenings or on the weekends. Um, so yeah, I would say about a month. And yeah, it's definitely challenging to get to do something new like interacting uh, with Linux at the low level. Um, but I relied heavily on you know, documentation and blog posts. Uh, so I would say the. The biggest part, the most difficult part, was really finding the right resources and the right uh, guides and examples that I could reuse, um, rather than um, you know, really figuring out the, the nitty-gritty details. But there's always a bugs that you need to uh, uh, investigate and you know, find out why, for example, C groups are not written or uh, YC groups are written on this machine, but not my other machine uh, that has a slightly different version of the Linux kernel. So I, I would say it's it, it's a doable project. I Well, I might be biased now because I, I've done it, but I, I think it's it's accessible with the right resources overall. And speaking of those resources, 
what what were the most challenging resources to access? I know you mentioned blogs. I know you mentioned books. What were the biggest challenges in terms of finding the right resources? And if there are any that stand out as being the most helpful, a book that you might recommend to our listeners, which one would it be? One big challenge is finding a blog post that goes deep enough, right? So as I've said earlier, if you read a book about Kubernetes, for example, they will tell you what containers are, but it's very hard to find information uh, about you know, Docker internals, for example. And, and even if you do, it, if you, know, you look into the Docker source code, it's very hard to tell you know, what is the minimum amount of uh, code that I need to create a container. Um, a resource that I found quite useful um, is well, the, the Linux manual. Um, I, I find it's very hard to navigate and you need also maybe more context about the kernel works uh, than, than I had to really understand what they're saying. So you know, the certain uh, system calls like uh, second syscalls to, to add a rule. Um, you can find them there documented. Um, they will also tell you which C headers you need to include to be able to use uh, those functions. Uh, but overall, I feel it would be useful to know a bit more about uh, Linux and the kernel to uh, to really make good use of uh, the Linux documentation in this case. Um, there aren't really any books that I can recommend on the topic uh, because, yeah, as I said, I find it very hard. Like I couldn't really find any book that goes deep uh, into these things, right? So you, you can, for example, um, there, there's a um, a big book. It's like 1,500 pages about the uh, Linux programming interface in C, and they tell you a bit you know, all the system calls that that you can make in Linux. Uh, but when you have 1,500 pages uh, and this huge collection of uh, of functions that you could call, uh, it's really hard to understand you know, what is the the correct combination to use to create containers, right? So it's not a book like that. It's not container specific. It's uh, Linux specific. And then if you know, um, if you know a bit more about containers, then maybe you can make choices based on that information. Uh, but I haven't found any, let's say, uh, containers from scratch book. Um, maybe it's something we could write. Uh, I, I guess some people might be interested in that. Sounds like there's an opportunity there. <laughs> um, that's good. Now, you did talk a little bit about C previously, and you also mentioned Rust. But with all the different programming languages, whether it's Rust, Go, or Zig, why did you end up deciding on C? What were the advantages that you saw in, in that that made you uh, make that choice? Yeah. So the main reason why I went, to, I went with C uh, is highly technical. Um, and it is that I um, I learned a bit of C in school, uh, and that was over ten years ago. I never really used it for anything anymore. So I just wanted to play more with it. Uh, so that, that that's the key reason. Besides that, uh, you know, C is very low level. Uh, it has um, simple access to all uh, Linux kernel stuff, be it you know variable file systems or system calls. So uh, I, I guess you could do it uh, with with Rust as well. You can definitely go. Uh, you could definitely use Go. Docker is written in Go. Other runtime containers, containers runtimes uh, are written in Go. Um, but I feel you know C is so low level that it's very hard to not learn anything from what you're doing. Right. So you. Uh, Every instruction uh, does exactly that. So if you're calling, um, uh, if you're making a syscall to um, set capabilities, for example, then it's quite clear what is happening. Um, and I think that's an advantage uh, of C, especially if your goal is to learn more about containers in this case. Um, I think it's good to be able to work at such low level 
uh, because you know, there's no magic happening like some you know, Go library that uh, does all se container security stuff uh, behind some function call. If you use that, it's quick. Uh, but um, there's um, there's less to to learn from, I would say, than you know, doing things the hardcore way. Let's see. If you could go back and change anything, add anything, modify anything with Barco, what would it be? I think the main thing that's missing there is the ability to uh, configure um, options like how much CPU to use, for example, how much memory. Everything is hard coded, um, and well, the the key reason there is uh, it's just some tool to to learn how containers work. Uh, but I guess being able to configure cer certain options uh, would make it extremely more useful, even just for learning purposes, uh, than having everything hard coded. So, well, then that's something that doesn't necessarily. We, we will need to go back in time to change that and something that can be added now. Uh, but if I had to add a feature, I think that would probably be it um, next to the networking, right? So um, we said earlier, there's no networking in Barco containers. Uh, that could be added. Um, and I guess it'd be fun also to be able to, I don't know, ping some host from inside a, a Barco container or, you know, in general, having a networking capabilities, I, I guess there's a lot more that would uh, be possible to explore then at that point. You published this article on, you published the blog post on on Hacker News. In terms of the feedback that you got, were you surprised by any of it? Was it what you expected more or less? What was the reaction? Oh yeah, absolutely surprised. So um, it, it is not the, the first time I share something on, uh, on Hacker News or, or Reddit. Um, and I wasn't really expecting much, uh, even because if I knew uh, about the traction the project would, would get, then maybe I would have polished the docs a bit more or, you know, uh, I, that is definitely something I was not expecting. Uh, and I've really seen lots of uh, positive feedback. And I, I think that really... Um, that really shows the need for other engineers, their their desire to learn more uh, about you know, technology in that, right? So how does a container work? Well, it, it, it turned out that question is very interesting for, for many people, uh, especially, you know, not to, to have an explanation that's not just a blog post, but something that you can actually um, run on your machine uh, and to have code that you can look at and you can change and you can compile. So the, there's definitely um, an, a need in the tech community, uh, I think, to have more uh, in-depth uh, resources, right? So not just how do I uh, run a container, but what is a container? I think, um, especially in the last few years, maybe technology has become more and more complicated, right? So in, in the 70s, all you needed to be a software engineer was you know, to, to know C, maybe assembly, if you were uh, unlucky enough. Um, and, but now, um, you know, we rely upon layers and layers, uh, complex layers of uh, technology uh, building on top of each other, right? So uh, uh, in this case, we mentioned Docker, um, right? So Docker relies on kernel features and Linux kernel relies on um, CPU features to, to create containers. Well, I, I received lots of positive feedback, unexpected, um, I must say. And uh, I would say it, it also became quite clear that there is a need in the community to not just have more tools, but really understand more about you know, how these tools work. So, but in school, for example, um, you learn about networking or computer architecture. Um, and the problem there is that it's all really, well, first of all, outdated uh, to a large extent, but also everything is paper-based. Um, so you read what, uh, what a DNS server is, but nobody really tells you, you know, um, how do you 
listen for DNS requests, how did you parse and do something with, with those requests? So it, it's everything quite high level, I would say, but what you learn from, from books and school. And in a way, unfortunately so, uh, because it would be great to have like a book that you could read uh, to, to learn more uh, about you know, how does a DNS work in detail. Uh, I'm not saying those do not exist. They, they certainly do. So at least that was my experience. And um, those kind of resources, it, it's something that I was, I've always been longing for. I still haven't found many good ones, maybe for only for specific topics. Uh, so that was definitely uh, interesting to see in the, in the community. Good. And also just your experience too. I think there's a lot to be said you know, what we try to feature a lot in the podcast are folks that you yourself that have, that have written something, that have created something, and that have shared it. A lot of people I think might be kicking around ideas, but they don't take that next step. You know, sometimes it can be imposter syndrome or feel like, oh, well, it's already done. Or what do I have to contribute? What would you say to people out there that might have an idea, but like I said, they, they stop from taking the next step, whether it's, you know, giving a talk or writing a post, uh, creating a tool, things of that nature. What would your advice be to people that are out there? What's your experience been in that regard? My my basic answer, which is very cliche, is go for it. Uh, it, it never hurts to, to write a blog post or to, to work on some project, um, even if you think someone else has done it. Um, though, something I must say as well, and I do it myself, uh, I also try to ensure what I'm giving the world has some value um so i i don't want to uh sort of discourage people from uh <laughs> from, from doing things from from writing blog posts or speaking at conferences as i said go for it uh but uh my recommendation um which i think is uh, good both for the person doing it and also for the community out there is do it but make sure uh there's uh a certain level of value that, that you are providing. So as an example, um, while working on this Barco project, right? Um, I came across so many blog posts uh, and, and links and, and opinions that it's very hard to um, find the information you need. Uh, and, and of course the internet is very accessible and that's great. Um, it's good that we have that. Uh, at the same time, that can create sort of an information overload that makes it hard to uh, find what you really need. Um, that, I think, or I hope, is also the spirit, for example, behind the blog post I write. Um, I try to only publish what I, I think has been really useful for me and that I couldn't find anywhere else. Um, if I see a blog post of someone who has more or less my same problem, but not exactly, uh, then in that case, you know, I, I try to avoid publishing more material to the internet uh, and muddy the waters even more. Um, so long story short, go for it. Um, that's my advice, but make sure uh, what you are giving the world has value, right? So don't just publish something for uh, for marketing, for uh, uh, SEO purpose. Like, that, that, that's something we've, we've seen a lot lately in the internet. It, it's becoming very hard uh, to, to find what you need. And even if you find it, uh, maybe you, know, you need information that could be a few lines, but there's a huge wall of text um, that just rephrases and rephrases the, uh, um, the actual information. And that's done open for uh, SEO purpose, for example. So what I hope uh, the internet uh, will be in the future uh, is uh, less, let's say, uh, sales techniques and more useful uh, information. Yeah. I think you find a lot of people agreeing with that. Um, in, you know, you had to name this. How did you decide on the name Barco? And what was more some of the alternatives maybe? Or were there, were there any alternatives? Uh, no, there weren't any alternatives. Um, so at the beginning of the chat, uh, you said Barco uh, has to do with the naval world and it's a Spanish world. Unfortunately, I must tell you, that's not correct. 
great. <laughs> That's good, actually. So, um, Barco is a Venetian world. Is a um, Venetian word. So, um, a word uh, of the language that is spoken or used to be spoken in, in the Venice area, in the Veneto region of Italy. Um, and what it means is like it, it's a um, a hut where you store hay, right? Hay for cows yeah, and, yeah. and horses, um, and that definitely hasn't do hasn't anything to do with uh, with Docker and containers and and ships. Uh, I really chose it just I guess out of tribute for uh, you know the the place I was born, um, and yeah, that the, there are. Now, it, Venetian is pretty much a dying language for a number of reasons, uh, but I find it a, a very um, you know, expressive language and um, to try and to preserve some words, maybe um, I, I use that uh, for that sparkle for, uh, for my project. So it has more to do, I guess, with regional lore than uh, uh, any recent um, strategy in naming. Um, yeah, so, uh, I would say all, all choices, like your name choices and, and choosing C, there's no big reasoning behind it. No really data driven, uh, decisions or, or technical, uh, considerations It's just, you know, something that I chose to have fun. Um, I, I think that that's also important. Every time, for example, you go to LinkedIn, uh, you see all these blog posts about business and, and data and percentages and uh, career development. And you now it can be interesting and important to an extent, but I think everything is becoming so uh, data driven and optimized for something uh, that we all forget. You know, there's more to life than the numbers. Couldn't agree more. And very nice to hear about the etymology of the word barco. I will be telling all my friends here in Spain that uh, they are very much mistaken if they think it's exclusively a Spanish word. That's very cool. You you mentioned a really important thing too, that there are uh, things in life that are more important than, you know, blog posts and, you know, these just sort of hype machines. Apart from knowing things from the Venetian language, what do you like to do in your free time? Oh, Yes, great question. I love talking about my free time. Um, I don't have much lately for one reason or another, uh, but in general, um, I really like cycling, uh, road cycling. Um, it's awesome to do it in the Netherlands. There's bike lanes everywhere. Um, then usually after a good ride, I like to uh, fire up my uh, Kamado grill. It's like a Grammy barbecue. Like cook some spare ribs or some smoked salmon, for example. That that's uh, great to do, especially in summer. Now, not so much. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have cats. I have cats. They uh, they really keep me busy. Um, when I'm not busy with cats, I try to play video games. Uh, that, that's something I, I like to do a lot um, more than I should, maybe. But yeah. That's what they're for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And any particular video games you've been playing lately or one that, you know, all-time favorites? Well, I, I recently got myself a Steam Deck, right? So the, the latest version came out. Uh, and currently, uh, well, I, I played a few uh, in space of maybe a month. It's a, there's Stray. That's like a story-based game where you're a cat, do you get stuff. Uh, and there's also robots. I, I, I recommend it. Um, and, um, I, I played the last of us. Uh, so m my wife and I, we, we watched the, uh, uh, the series on, what was it HBO, I guess. Yeah. HBO. Um, and, and currently, uh, I, I'm playing horizon zero dawn. And so what's next for you? What can we expect, you know, new things you'll be writing and see any new projects that you have in mind? As we're recording this, uh, it's the well, it, it's still December, um, and Christmas is approaching. Uh, so, what's next for me really is playing video games and build Legos. So that's what's next for me. After that, um, oh, there's there's a book about AI uh, that, that I'm reading. It's applied AI for engineers, I think. So um, it. it it contains more information about how you as an engineer can use AI to 
build stuff rather than you know complex maths and equations that tell you the nitty-gritty details of statistical models. Um, so that that's something I'm reading, but I bought that book to play games and build Legos uh, mostly. And and also I'm looking for a um, um, a nice Rust project to contribute to, uh, open source project. I haven't found one yet, but I'm looking for something um, systems level, um, possibly in the networking space. Uh, so that's what I like to do after Christmas. If I find anything, uh, then you, know, you will see it on, on my GitHub profile. Solid plan. And for folks out there that have Rust-based uh, networking projects that need contributors, you you definitely have someone you can speak to here. For folks that want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? So I have a GitHub profile, obviously, uh, because I work at GitHub, uh, though there's no way to reach me there, I think. Uh, besides that, there's LinkedIn. So if you uh, connect with me uh, on LinkedIn, there's a, well, no, you can send me a message uh, and I'll be, uh, I'll be open to, uh, to have a nice conversation. Uh, yeah. So that's pretty much all the social networks I use. <laughs> that's fine. It's more than enough. I think we all, 2024 can be the year that we downsize our social media and spend more time building things with Legos, learning about AI, playing video games, cycling, doing other kinds of hobbies and habits. I definitely think that's a healthy thing for us to keep in mind. Well, Luca, thank you very much, first of all, for your time. And secondly, for all the hard work that you put into this project. As others have already benefited from what you put out on Hacker News, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate what you've shared with us today in terms of the process behind it, how you're answering questions that you couldn't find answers for, um, creating resources that you feel were missing in the ecosystem as a lesson for others to do the same. Like you said, always focusing on providing value for others. So thank you. Yes, I, I definitely hope um, my projects uh, can be useful for others to learn more, well, in this case, about containers. Um, yeah, and, uh, I, I wish everyone uh, a good time ahead. See you in 2024. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.